You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime, www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast. Okay, welcome to another edition of TopCast. We have a very special Sunday night show tonight with somebody that's been involved in pinball on just a variety of levels, definitely since the uh, since the 70s. But um, I have as my engineer tonight, Mr. Jim Shelberg of the Pin Game Journal. Greetings. He's helping us out. He's also uh, messing with the webcam, which we are going to be using in full force tonight to illustrate some stuff because we have some, uh, some good pictures to match the interview that we're doing tonight. So, without too much ado, special guest, special guest, special guest, I'd like to introduce Roger Sharp. Say hello, Roger. Well, hello, Roger. Hello, all right, Roger. Good. I just want to make sure I can hear you. Hi, Clay. Hi, how are you doing? Say hello to Mr. Shelberg. And Jim, greetings as well. Hey, Roger. Put these on, Mr. Shelberg. You know? But anyways, uh, so, Roger. The the thing that's that I, I re- always remember getting the first pinball book I ever bought was that picture of you in a Manhattan, New York courtroom in 1976 where pinball was illegal in New York City. And I see this picture of you playing a game that's actually set up in the courtroom with a bunch of people all kind of gathered around. And, I, and I've heard it said that like you would... Like pick out. You were trying to demonstrate that that pinball was not a gambling tool at all. That it was a, 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 a an amusement device that required a great amount of skill, and that you would like call out shots, like you know Babe Ruth did in the World Series. <laughs> you know, I'm going to make this shot, and then you'd make the shot. I'm going to make that shot, and then you'd make the shot. And, and I guess they were just totally amazed. But I, now that's just what I've heard mostly from Mr. Shelberg. You know, he loves to recant that story. I'd like to hear this story from you and how how this all happened, how you got there. I mean, you know, of all the people in the world, what you know, how did you get into that courtroom? And, you know, the, give me the whole thing. Sure. Um, I know you're probably of sick just, of telling uh, this story, yeah. aren't you? It's a matter of uh, being in the right place at the right time. Um, I had done, or at least had been working on, the uh, the pinball book up to that point in time had gotten uh, somewhat familiar with many of the people in the industry and uh, had done uh, an article in Gentleman's Quarterly where I had been uh, at that time the uh, the associate editor um, and had also done a piece in the New York Times and from that the New York uh, State Association reached out and contacted me to see if I would be involved or would want to get involved to uh, to help them uh, legalize pinball um, and uh, throw out uh, restrictions that had been in place uh, at that point for 35 years. Now, what? how did... Um, so you were doing... You were basically kind of a pinball author at this time. Well, I was, uh, I guess, uh, with a couple... Uh, with a magazine piece... Uh, and the New York Times piece, yes. No, uh, but truly, I mean, I and, and I've 
kind of told this story as well. I, I did not grow up with pinball. I mean, I started playing when I went to college. So it wasn't as if this was something that I had intimate familiarity with. And based on my college experience, pinball became something that I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, when I moved to New York City after I left school and I went to the uh, University of Wisconsin, uh, New York City did not have pinball machines. And, and being in the situation that I was at with Gentleman's Quarterly, I thought this would be a nice way to try to meet people in the industry and maybe I could buy a, a machine. And that was really the sole motivation of uh, what got me going on my quest and I think the part that surprised me was in going out to do some research initially at the uh, New York Public Library and not finding any pinball books. Uh, it was like, oh, okay, now where do I go? How do I start this process? And we're looking at this is 1974. And I remember going back to uh, the editor of the magazine saying that, you know, the piece that I wanted to do was going to take a little bit longer and... Uh, he kind of offhandedly, chokingly said, well, you think you know so much about that. Well, why don't you write a book? And that began me on a journey of uh, going out and meeting with publishers, uh, getting a, uh, an attorney, getting an agent, and, you know, eventually, uh, three years later, having a pinball book. But, you know, starting totally from scratch, totally not knowing anything about the industry really nothing about pinball other than the fact that I had played it in school, liked it, and thought it would be neat to have a game because there were no games around. So I think that, you know, the the level of familiarity that I was garnering uh, with people in the industry uh, through, you know, a couple of trade shows that I had gone to up to that point in time, and then the fact that, okay, except for Esquire magazine, which in 1970 did it, 1972 had done a feature on pinball. There really hadn't been anything in the consumer press, and here, you know, here I come, literally almost back to back. There's, you know, uh, a nice color feature in Gentleman's Quarterly, and then uh, in the Arts and Leisure section of the Sunday New York Times, which is fairly well read. Uh, here's this other feature on pinball, and, and suddenly I became, uh, I guess, much more real to people that I had encountered, Alvin Gottlieb being one and others who had some uh, some doubts and apprehensions as to whether or not I could really do a book or get a book off the ground because, you know, there had been a number of people that had been talking about it. And, you know, the late Dick Bouchel had been working on, you know, a variety of different pinball tones for, you know, for years and years and years and eventually came out uh, before he passed away with a, a, a couple of volumes that were truly meticulously done. But I think that... Uh, Having had some credibility, if you will, from being printed in legitimate publications meant, okay, here is somebody that kind of knows the business, or at least he's learning it. He's had a chance to, to meet with, you know, many of the people, Harry Williams, Bill Gersh, uh, Herb Jones, Alvin Gottlieb, Sam Gensberg, uh, Sam Stern. I mean, the list kind of goes on and on. Now, uh, as far as, like, who was trying to legalize pinball in New York? Who, who was basically, you know, bringing this to the city council? Uh, I think that it was, God, and, you know, I, I did a talk at uh, Pinball Expo, and I'd forgotten names, and for some reason, uh, somewhere I was able to unlock a couple of doors in my brain, and I want to say Irving Holtzman and Ben Tchaikovsky were the two principals of the 
New York State Association. And what, what, had, what was their connection? Uh, they were the president and the vice president, respectively, of this state association representing, you know, the industry, you know, uh, um, the efforts of, of the industry at large, at least on a local level. Uh, you had a, a number, and you still do, although maybe people are not as familiar with it, you still have a, a number of very strong state associations. They put on trade shows. They do uh, whatever lobbying may need to be done for uh, different tax scenarios or if there are court cases where people are saying, you know, we don't want uh, there to be uh, arcades or what have you, you know, in our town, they'll go out and, you know, they'll fight the fight, hopefully. Uh, and in 1972, the New York State Association, because this is not something that had just been laying there uh, without anybody ever attempting to change and alter what had happened when Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia was in power in New York City. Uh, 1972, I gathered that, uh, from what they had told me, that they had mounted a campaign. Bess Meyerson was the uh, Commissioner of Consumer Affairs for New York City, and she was a proponent of, you know, opening up the doors, ending the restrictions, effectively legalizing, you know, the operation of pinball machines. So it's amazing that these people really weren't, I mean, they didn't work for Bally, they didn't work for Williams, they didn't work for Gottlieb, so you didn't have any industry people pushing for this? Well, yeah, uh, I know that uh, Rufus King was an attorney who had represented uh, D. Gottlieb and Company back in 1956 before the Kefauver Commission to, uh, I guess, really put into to fundamental ruling the difference between an amusement pinball machine and a bingo-style pinball machine. Right, that had to do uh, with the Johnson the, Act, right? I'm sorry? Didn't that have something to do with the Johnson Act back in 52 that they were arguing that? Possibly. I mean, that you got me on for, for the time being, and maybe it'll come back to me. But uh, I know that, uh, I guess the best way to describe it is that the industry by and large, New York is a great city, don't get me wrong, but I don't think that it was something where they were going to either, you know, live or die. You know, the, the business back in the mid-70s was going along nicely, and didn't really need New York, other than the fact that you would like to be there. Um, so I think that it was on everybody's radar of wanting to do it. It wasn't as if the, and I think it was the MAA uh, was the association, and, and don't ask because I don't know what the letters stand for, and it probably was something different. Uh, it was enough to remember Irving Holtzman and Ben Tchaikovsky's names. But okay. I, but I think that uh, effectively they were on this quest to try to open it up for Local operators, uh, local distribution, obviously, it would benefit everybody, you know, locally, and there would be an incremental benefit to a thing. We're just looking at, at net sales for the few pinball manufacturers that were there uh, in, in business. So I think that uh, what wound up happening in 72 was things did not happen, and they continued, and Eugene Mastropieri, who was, uh, I think, a local congressman or councilman, uh, made the proposal again. Uh, there was, uh, Eleanor Guggenheim was the new Commissioner of Consumer Affairs and she was behind it. But there had to be, you know, the, the court case to make it official going before the City Council. Now, what machines were actually in the courtroom for this? Uh, there were two. There was, uh, an Eldorado and then the Bank Shot. And who supplied the machines? I want to say that it was either Runyon or Mondial. 
Okay, so the you know, one of the distributors in New York was Mondial for Gottlieb. Right. Okay, I don't know who was Rundall and also a distributor, a Bally distributor? Uh Runyon was a I guess a distributor a little bit for everybody. Uh Al Simon was the Williams distributor. Okay. Uh so I, I wanna say that it was probably Mondial that provided the equipment. Did you request? I didn't have a choice in it. It was just Oh, you didn't. Okay. So like were you familiar with these games? Yeah. And you did you make every shot you called? Well, um, I did not call that many per se. Oh come on, don't come on, brag a little. Let's hear it. Yeah, I'm making that one. That drop target's mine. Well, uh, truthfully, I mean, what I tried to do was in cradling a ball on the flipper, explain just the the overall geometry and what the game rules were. And yes, if I hit this target, that's going to spot the two and the fifteen because I'm trying to fill out my rack. If I go up to the top, I can collect a bonus because you have two kickout holes on either side, and I'm trying to do this off of memory. Um, obviously, you had the five lanes up on top, and uh, you know the, the key ingredient for them was I, I think that I played a couple of balls, gave uh, I'd like to think a, a fairly good demonstration as to you know what the relative skill elements were and the fact that there was a rhyme and a reason as to why there were certain features on the play field, and then uh, I remembered encountering uh, some pinball machines uh, actually in Skokie, Illinois, at a bowling alley where they had taken the plungers off because that was seen as being something that made it a gambling device. And this is well before there were ever the, the auto shooters. Now, what about, um, how were the replays set on this game, or did that just never come up? It never came up because we knew that we were going in as an add-a-ball. Oh, okay, uh, so the games the, were the set The idea of a replay was seen as something of value, and as such, being something of value, it could be sold, bartered, there could be a gambling element. But uh, New York went in under the same kind of guidance that I had experienced in Wisconsin. Wisconsin was an out-of-ball state. Now, um, because you went to school or you grew up in Wisconsin, right? Well, I grew up in Chicago but went to school in Madison. Okay. okay. And growing up in Chicago, admittedly, meant that I had no access to pinball because pinball was illegal in Chicago until 76. So they, they Chicago followed New York... When uh, when New York changed their their policy, uh, Chicago foul, uh, followed. Uh, as did there was another case that I got involved with. I want to say in Fairfax, Virginia, or someplace. There's another one in California. And, and you were involved. In in, you were involved in all these. Yeah, in some way, shape, or form. Not necessarily test. Uh, well, I testified in Ohio. The others, I think that it was more just providing uh, some background information and material. Just. Uh, the, the relative chronology and history of the uh, of the industry and, and providing, I guess, some background just based on the level of familiarity that I had attained and uh, being able to sit down with everybody, uh, or mostly everybody who's still alive, who kind of shaped the industry from day one. Now, how did you get your first job in pinball? Wait, hold on a half second. Is that Marvin? Roger, do you want to talk to Marvin Ugoda? Sure. And Marvin, Marvin wants, I don't know what's up. Here's the phone number right here, Jim, on the bottom of the page. Tell Marvin to call. Marvin, I for, he, when he heard that you were going to be on this, he called me and said, i I, I got to talk to Roger. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, um, fine. Call me at, you know, 8.15 or something like that. And I'll, you know, usually Marvin is like, you know, he he's going to be late to his own funeral. You know, he's one of those guys. I understand. But here it is, 8.15, and he called. <laughs> I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Well, he's going to call back. But anyways, so when did you land your first job in the industry? Uh, full-time or? Yeah, well, 
whatever. Because, I mean, I have been obviously I've been involved with the industry going back to you know the initial research that I had done. Uh, I had uh, worked with some of the companies on the East Coast, uh, helping them you know with various promotions and what have you. Bayside Home Games being one, some of the local distributors. I had done some uh, some consulting or, or, or independent tasks for Bally and for others. But uh, truthfully, the the first time that uh, I was gainfully employed was uh, April 18th, 1988. Was uh, first time I stepped through the door at Williams, uh, being the uh, director of marketing. Yeah, but, but before I had that, done game design for Game Plan. Right. As an outsider, uh, still living in New York, still working. I think at that time, still at Gentleman's Quarterly, then as managing editor. Uh, so I had done that. I had uh, worked on Barracora with Williams. There were a couple of designs that I had done at Gottlieb that never saw the light of day. Uh, at one time, I came close to working at Atari, came close to working at Gottlieb, uh, came close to working at Williams, at Bally. Uh, so, I mean, there were, there were things that, uh, either just because of circumstance or what have you, that never really, really did pan out, but at least I had the good fortune of being able to... Uh, be somewhat involved as, as a person who was somewhat recognized as being a, a good player, and I'd come in and I'd give my input and offer suggestions or you know, answer whatever questions that you know some of the designers had. Uh, I know that I worked on behalf of Bally for their Super Shooter Pinball Tournament uh, and uh, provided some uh, play-by-play with, uh, I guess he's a local disc jockey that people may remember, uh, Gary Meyer before he was really starting out um, at the uh, the Playboy Tower in downtown Chicago. So, I mean, again, I had been on the periphery. I was writing as a contributing editor to Playmeter, was writing for Cashbox, was writing for Replay, was doing some writing for Bending Times, you know, for all the trades. And I, I guess people tend to know me more for the 15 years that I was the contributing editor to Playmeter doing uh, Critics' Corner. Hmm. Now... Tell me about the game plan. You did sharpshooter, and the the cowboy on the sharpshooter glass is you. That's without a question. Yes. Okay. Now, who are the two ladies? Two ladies. Uh, the lady on my right leg, with her hand higher up my thigh, is my wife, Ellen. Oh God! Come on. You don't have a better story than that. And <laughs> the woman on my left leg, with her hand a little bit lower down on my thigh, is her sister. No, it's actually the uh, wife of Lee Goldboss, who was the president of Game Plan. That was his wife, now ex-wife, Marilyn. Wow. And so Lee, Lee is actually in the background, I want to say on the right side, holding a shotgun. It's his daughter that's in front of him, the little blonde-haired girl, and their cat. Uh, Mike Abrams, who is his vice president partner, is the guy sitting back with his legs up on, the, on a stool. Uh, and then... An ode to my very, very dear friend Steve Epstein in the very background is uh, Z's Cafe because Steve, when he was growing up, had the nickname of uh, Z or Zelmo for some of his basketball prowess as a young fellow. All right, here's Marvin. Hold on a second. Hold sure. on. Marvin? Yo. Marvin, you're, you're on yeah. the air with Roger. Hello, Mr. Roger Sharp. Hi, Marvin. How are you? Good. Nice to see you. I mean, nice to talk to you and... See all the nice things you write about you, and you're one of the icons of the pinball business. Well, thank you, sir. I think, I think, probably the nicest thing I think is that your sons, with their commentary column, have an interest in what you created for all these years. 
I know fathers create nice things and then they just go away. But I think with your sons, I mean, with their ability, what they do, I, I'm really happy for you. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I, truthfully, I, I never thought that what I've been able to achieve over the past 30 plus years would have been my, I guess, either my destiny or my legacy in life. Uh, and, and I have no, you know, second thoughts about the way that it's gone and the fact that both, you know, Joshua and Zachary, I guess, have taken on the mantle, uh, is, uh, is really something special. And, uh, I'm appreciative of the fact that they enjoy the industry and come to it with absolute passion and dedication and an earnest belief in not only what it is today, currently, but what the potentiality is for it to be, you know, in the future. And, uh, you know, that, that's something that's great. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, and I also want to give kudos to uh, Clay, because he, he's actually the fellow that does the website with all the information, And uh, but he never takes all the, a lot of the calls. And I really get so many accolades, and people calling in, and Marvin, all the world. Marvin, 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 <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's time for you to go now. Thanks for calling. <laughs> you have a good night, okay, Marvin? What are, you, what are you uptight about? <laughs> Marvin. <laughs> All anyway, right, Marvin. both of you did a nice job. And look for, hey, Roger, I look forward to seeing you at this AMOA convention. You're there, Arthur. Absolutely. I look forward to it as well. You take care, my dear friend. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Take care, Bye. Marvin. Bye. 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 Still there, Roger? I still am. Yeah, Marvin, he just had to call. Well, he's a special guy. Yeah, he sure is. But I think that that's the part that, you know, intrigued me always about pinball was uh, absolutely the machines on some levels, but it was really getting to know the people and the personalities and, and the characters, both, you know, past, present. And uh, I think that that's the part that uh, somehow struck a responsive chord to me that went beyond it being just a book project. Let's face it, there have been a number of books that came out around the time of mine. Michael Colmers and uh, Ed Trapunsky and Harry McGowan. Yeah, but yours uh, is the one that's didn't out. Really stay. Yours is the one that's out of print, and yours is the one that brings the big bucks on eBay. Yeah. What, what, why was it never reprinted? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, I think that uh, E.P. Dutton as a publisher uh, had a nice run with it. They enjoyed it, uh, but uh, never felt the need to go back and print. I got all of the rights everything and you know kind of toyed around with it but uh, it was never the right opportunity to do it uh, there was a financial consideration just because of the nature of the book the amount of color the kind of paper stock and so on yeah it's all color it's a beautiful book yeah so I think that uh, you know there were, there were a couple of factors that came into play as to not doing it and, and truthfully uh, there was also the necessary passage of time to uh, to be able to really update it and do justice to it I remember Nolan Bushnell uh, and hopefully people are familiar with the name. Uh, Nolan really kind of put uh, video games on the map. Uh, but uh, seeing Nolan after my book had been out, and I was at the uh, Fall Trade Show in Chicago, and I walked down the aisle, and there was Nolan, and I said, what are you doing here? I thought your book was already done. And I was like, well, I'm still around. I still like the industry. And, coming back, and his comment to me was, uh, so when are you going to do... Uh, a book on the history of video games. And I said, well, you know, when there is a history, because I think it was about five or six years in from when Pong hit, hit the scene. Yeah, and, and, and Nolan was responsible for Pong. He was uh, also responsible for, uh, what was it, Space, um, 
Oh, that other the game in the fiberglass cabinet that's... Well, there was uh, Space War. Yeah. Uh, there was, obviously, Missile Command. I mean, a whole slew of games that came out uh, by... Uh, yeah, by Atari. Asteroids. They came out by Atari that really kind of gave rise to, to video games and, and, more importantly, popularized the notion of coin-operated amusement equipment. You know, pinball benefited, despite what you know most people, uh, in hindsight, want to think. Uh, it wasn't that uh, video was suddenly successful, that pinball fell into the the dark abyss. If anything, what it provided was uh, the opening of more family entertainment centers, more mall game rooms. Right, widened its appeal to at least, you know, it rode on maybe the coattails to some degree, but they were riding on each other's coattails, really. Absolutely, and there was cross-influencing as to, you know, how both adapted to whatever some of the better things were of each of the mediums. So... Now, how did you sell your designs to Game Plan and to Williams? You, you know, you sold the, you sold the Sharpshooter, and it, did you actually? I mean, doing that was it like you know, like you know, like Pat Lawler goes in his garage and he comes out with a white wood that has you know that that plays and he and he hands it off. Was that how you were doing it too? No, not at all. Okay. Um, I was at a uh, New York State uh, trade show. Uh, and uh, encountered Ken Anderson, who at the time was uh, a game planner. I'd known Ken from his days at Chicago Coin. And he took me over to look at uh, a cocktail table uh, pinball machine that uh, this company I'd never heard of was doing. And it was uh, Real Cigarettes was the, the brand on it. And uh, asked him what I thought. And, I mean, it was like, my God, you can't do cigarettes. I mean, in pinball. Things are still somewhat, you know, tenuous in regard to people's acceptance of pinball machines. There's a lot of stigma attached to them. And, uh, but I like the concept of a cocktail table and, uh, I wound up eventually that, later that night having dinner with Ken, with Lee Goldboss, who was the president of the game plan. And, uh, we kind of talked a little bit about what his intention was and, he was somebody uh, whose company was uh, AES Technology, and AES Technology was, uh, I guess, a, a technology company of sorts uh, doing government contract work. And uh, Lee and his partner, Mike, saw an opportunity to come into the pinball business. And what they saw was the opportunity, because of all the video games that were coming out in different cabinet configurations and some sit-downs, for those who remember old Pac-Man games, you know, maybe stuck uh, somewhere in a restaurant that you could get uh, much broader distribution. And uh, the next one that they were doing was going to be black velvet based on the alcohol. And it's just like, this is great. Those are two things that you can't do. And uh, so you we, straightened we had, them out? we had a good dinner. I uh, went back to New York. They went back to, you know, the Chicagoland area. And I want to say that I probably had a trip because if it was a New York State show, it had to be in the spring. And probably that summer was when I made it back to Chicago uh, for the Consumer Electronics Show and did a side trip out to meet with Lee just to talk, see how things were going. They wanted me to come by and show me the new factory and what have you that was in Elk Grove Village. And we got to talking. And uh, during my, I guess, my travails and putting my pinball book together and, and having been around all of the, you know, the secret back rooms of design and development and having had the opportunity to play, you know, every game up to that point for the previous 20 years that had been manufactured, 
uh, and having had the chance to play not only throughout the United States but throughout Europe, I had a pretty good sense of the types of games that I enjoyed personally uh, and, and some of what those component parts and play field design appealed to me. And, uh, you know, Lee and I were talking and his comment was that he wanted to get into, you know, conventional full-size pinball machines after they were done with these two, you know, commercial efforts. And, uh, you know, that I have any thoughts about it because they really didn't have, you know, designers per se. Wendell McAdams was there, had come over from Chicago, uh, Chicago Coin, uh, but they did not have any hardcore designers as we would think of them. And uh, I took out uh, a little piece of paper, and I did some circles, and I did some squares, and uh, I held it up to him. I explained what, this, what my drawing was, and I said, but it would be too expensive. And uh, he called Wendell McAdams in, and I gave Wendell McAdams, literally, it had to be almost like a napkin size. These are the summer bumpers, these circles over here, this is like a lane thing over there, here's this, the target bank, uh, and what have you, and he looked back at Lee and told Lee it would be too expensive. And I remember looking back at Lee and saying, I told you, I mean, I know that. And Lee said something to me that nobody else had, because truthfully I had talked about doing some designs potentially for any of the other companies, as a way of just saying thank you for all the help that they provided me in having my book come together. And Lee asked me, dead on, looking me straight in the face, would it be successful? And for the quarter of a millisecond that it took me to answer, I said, if I knew anything about pinball, um, yes, it would be. He said, okay, let's do it. Really? So now that was the, that was Sharpshooter, right? That was Sharpshooter. And Sharpshooter effectively was done in a fashion that the the main portion of the play field is, uh, and I'm sure that most people know this, uh, Gottlieb's uh, free fall slash sky jump with the target bank and the lane configuration. Right. Uh, the bottom, and it's a flop, the bottom set of the jet bumpers was from William Satin Dahl, which I don't think was really utilized the way that it might have been just based on the the live space on that particular playfield design, but I like the idea of having, you know, jet bumpers down on the bottom like that to, to effectively act as extra flippers. So I took those two brochures, referenced them, made my other changes, which were the spinner lane and the loop around and the kickout hole, and said, here, this is it. And uh, I want to say that maybe about two weeks later, I wound up flying back out and uh, went in, and Joe Jose was also uh, there, very instrumental in making everything happen, and I'll explain why in a moment. But they had the Whitewood up, and the Whitewood up was great because my top right portion of the play field didn't fit. And the spinner was overlapping the kickout hole and the lane and so on, and it was like, okay, well, this doesn't work, guys. So what are we going to do? And Joe excused himself, came back, and basically they altered where I had had the spinner originally. And he said, what about this? And I said, well, that's great. I mean, I love it. Why, you know, and, uh, and Joe and I became very, very close. I mean, he's an incredibly talented and gifted person, very hardworking. He's no longer with us. He did some marvelous games at Stern. He did uh, some incredible things at Williams uh, toward the end of his career. 
But, uh, you know, his thing was that they didn't know how I would respond to somebody, in quotes, tampering with my design. And uh, I think that uh, when they saw how I responded to it, uh, the rest, as they said, uh, say, went along methodically. I did uh, nine out of the next ten weekends. I flew back and forth between uh, Chicago and uh, New York, which is where I was living. And I remember coming back, I want to say it was either on Christmas or New Year's, with a stopwatch in hand, going into the factory to play and time out the game for uh, ball time as well as making notes as to the amount of multiplier I was getting and so on, basically going through everything. Uh, Snapper was uh, the guy on uh, the programming portion of it. I drove George Malenton crazy for the artwork because, as I told him, I did not want the Dracula artwork for Harry Williams' game that Stern had done. There were a lot of purples and things. I wanted it to be as realistic as it possibly could be. In fact, if I'd had my way, it would have been black and white because this is my ode or homage to uh, High Noon. And I wanted it to be one piece of artwork. Most people think that uh, I'm the guy also being shot on the play field. I'm not. There's just been the showdown. I've done the shooting. The guy is falling, and that's why the plastics on the play field have horses and things reared up, all looking back up that way. It was, it was a daunting challenge for George to try to bring to life. But again, having said that, that was the process. The process was literally, as I said, being in the right place at the right time, getting a great opportunity. We uh, unveiled the game at the ATE show in London. Uh, basically had two, I think two or three that we had built up, uh, with Wendell praying that the chicken wire and gum would all hold and the scotch tape would hold for the games to really function correctly, which they did. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. They uh, wanted to in Coney Island that followed, which most people give me credit for designing. No. In fact, I totally don't do it. I've given him three other designs. Um, but he wanted to do this, the flop of Sharpshooter. And uh, did a couple more games for them, and in between there, I had gotten very close with Mike Stroll, who was the president at Williams, and we had talked about my uh, moving out to Chicago and coming on board there and also doing design work, and, uh, you know, Baracor was a game that was uh, got about three years in the making before it came to market. Yeah, now, let's talk about that particular game. Which, uh... And that one, truthfully, that one uh, was a full-size Mylar. Steve Kordak put together a care package for me, got me components, parts, and what have you, so that I knew what kind of surface I was dealing with, not only on top of the play field, but more importantly, uh, what the assemblies were below, so I could leave enough spacing for lights, leave enough spacing so I didn't run into the same problems that I ran into at Sharpshooter. So that was actually my first full-size Mylar that I'd ever done. So when you say a Mylar, do you mean like you, you were building this on a... Uh, it was an actual full-scale drawing. It's it's what the guys now do with AutoCAD. Oh, uh, this okay. was a full full-size drawing uh, with everything in position. Everything correct. So they basically just transfer this to you know however they route them. You know right to turn it into a white one. Gotcha, gotcha. And you did this again. You were still in New York at the I time. I was still in New York. Yep. And it was another one of those you know traveling back and forth, back and forth. Barry Oser was given the task of uh, working on the, the build-up uh, at, at various points in time. Uh, Larry DeMar was doing some programming for it before he switched over uh, to work with Eugene on Defender. 
uh, got Tony Kramer, Paul DeSalt, Ed Sahaki, and uh, Mr. Uh, Watson was the fellow in charge of doing the artwork. I think it was one of his first projects that he had done for Williams. Now, you know, you so you divide, you design these games for for Williams and and and, and uh, game plan. Did you actually make any money doing this, or was this just fun and games at this? No, point? I mean uh, there was some money involved, but uh, it really wasn't you know for the money so much as it was the opportunity to try to bring to life uh, my my approach to game design. And, you know, it's one thing to be able to have some influence on a Greg Kamick game or a Jim Catler game or a Steve Ritchie game or uh, got, uh, a John Trudeau game uh, or an Adolf Seitz at, at uh, Gottlieb. You know, I mean, across the board with all these people. Uh, it's another thing to be able to, uh, you know, really kind of do it on your own and show that uh, maybe you have an affinity for this uh, Maybe there's a gift that you have, and then really much more of a thoroughness. Uh, you know, Sharpshooter was the first game with a million light. Uh, because as a player, I didn't like needing to tilt out a game at 998, 980 before you rolled it, and uh, the 800 and some odd thousand was still flashing as the high score. And there was a reluctance and a resistance for people to do it. Uh, first game with seven digits, bless his heart, was Harry Williams on big game. Because we talked about it a lot, and he was able to affect it. Uh, the type of parts that were available, the the uh, the, uh, the scoring displays that uh, Game Plan had access to only allowed me the six digits, so we did the million light on top. Uh, on Veracore, I had a chance to do multi-lane change TM, so that I could take three lanes and have them function as six, with double lighting up on top, and I also gave players the opportunity to play for either a three-ball multi-ball or they could play for two-ball. So, I mean, so there were there were little touches, again, within, God, the rudimentary beginnings of where things were with solid state and not having uh, the same type of, uh, of flexibility uh, and, and uh, familiarity that subsequent programmers had of saying, you know, what are the things that I would like? And, and not just in the, the overall physics of the game, not only in looking at sharpshooters specifically and maybe why it, it had and has been, uh, really kind of stood the test of time is that here was a thematic choreography of uh, gunshot sounds for the drop targets, galloping hooves, bless his heart, Steve Epstein saying, you know, do that for the spinner, the dynamite explosion for the 50,000 point shot. I wanted something that was you know, really as true as it could be to the theme as opposed to it just kind of being slapped on and not having any kind of relationship. And point of truth, at least at Barracora, the original design was not that. Uh, there was a uh, roulette wheel underneath the play field in the center in the game. Its original theme was Las Vegas. So, so how did that get changed or why did it get changed? I'm sorry? Why did that get changed? <clears throat> I think that there was a prevailing attitude that uh, people didn't like Las Vegas as a theme, didn't like the idea of gambling and what have you, and I thought that it was somewhat innocent. Monte Carlo had come out uh, in 75 from Bali and was good, and you know the little roulette wheel thing I thought was fun. We could have some fun with it. Uh, Williams had done Lucky Sevens, and you know gambling as elements were fine, and I just thought that 
Las Vegas as the backdrop was uh, much more universal. It seems kind of hypocritical. I mean, you know, back in what seventy, Williams had Gold Rush that had like a slot machine. Oh yeah, no, I know. You know, I, I mean, that seems really odd. And I mean, well, they... but a lot of it was due to uh, and taking nothing away as a dear friend. You know, Steve Ritchie coined the term, "Oh, it's Las Vegas." So we we kind of got shunted into the corner. Right. Nobody paid a lot of attention to it. It was a totally different experience in game plan. Game plan, I was the only game in town for them. At Williams, you had a design staff. I mean, you had Steve Kordak that was still very, very active. Uh, you had uh, Steve Ritchie. Uh, you, you had a number of different people who were you know, pumping out game designs. And uh, Barry Oslin. And, and here I am, you know, this guy on the outside, and it becomes somebody's stepchild. So, I mean, in that context, it, it wasn't the same experience where I could kind of guide it and know that things were going my way, and some of the things got out of hand. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, there was Barracor, but the integrity of the game design was still there in terms of the overall geometry and what some of the game rules were that I wanted it to be. I wanted that type of multi-ball opportunity. I wanted to do a multi-lane change. Uh, so, you know, from that from that respect... Uh, it, it, it did work out, although, again, when I saw the artwork for the first time walking into the factory and Steve Kordak took me down to the middle of the uh, the production line, and here's this game that I'm looking at from a distance, and it's like, huh? And it's just, you know, striking face with, like, fish coming out of her head. And it's like, what the hell? And I, I remember I couldn't even pronounce Barra Barra. Yeah, or, I, mean, I know how you feel. What is it? And uh, I look, look, because Steve had this big smile on his face as we kept on walking closer to him. I was like, oh, it's my game. My God, what did you do to it? Oh, my God. But, you know, it worked out. I think that uh, my biggest regret was Mike Stroll not listening to me. Um, Steve Ritchie had been working on Black Knight. Uh, admittedly, you know, pinball was kind of going through one of its periods. And uh, he thought that every game had to be a double-level play field. And, uh, and who thought that? Mike Stroll. Oh, okay. And instead of following up, which is where it was supposed to be, following up Black Knight with Barracora, he came back with Jungle Lord. Great game, don't get me wrong. I think that you know Barry did a great job with it. But Bally was smart enough to say, okay, we're going to move away from, you know, what we've done with, uh, I think Flash Gordon was like one of their first, um, and they came out with 8-Ball Deluxe. And I still to this day believe, and again, maybe some of it is my own vanity, I think on balance, uh, the better playing game is Barracora compared to 8-Ball Deluxe. 8-Ball Deluxe was incredibly successful because everybody was doing double-level play fields, and here Bally came out with this you know, very solid game, straightforward, and I think that... Uh, if Barracor had been able to go into that spot rather than being held back until 1982 in the summer, that uh, maybe it would have gotten uh, a better reception. Right. It might have been thought of uh, in a little bit uh, better fashion, with more familiarity than uh, kind of like falling into the abyss. So but let's that's, uh, that's okay. let's let's move up to 1988. You said you. Uh, you landed the job, full-time job. In yeah, I was living Chicago. in Connecticut, and I uh, wound up getting a call. Now, to put it all in context and perspective, it wasn't as if I had been out of touch with either Williams or the rest of the industry. Uh, in fact, I had been talking with uh, with Williams the previous year uh, 
for a couple of different projects. One was I wanted to launch a consumer magazine and do what I had been doing with video games magazine. I had left GQ a few years before then and uh, eventually wound up taking over the editorship of the, the original video games magazine. Uh, while starting up a couple of other magazines and doing some other books, but uh, I wanted to do a consumer kind of like coin-out magazine. I thought there was a marketplace for it. And with the video game magazine, I had given away pinball machines. I had given away video games, arcade games, as part of a way just to kind of get uh, readership going. And we had uh, really good, solid circulation. Did great editorial, got advertising in, and... What I wanted for the launch of this new magazine was to reach out to the various manufacturers to see if they would ship the games out with the premiere issue. And I felt that after that premiere issue, when people had a chance to see it, that they would then want to subscribe and I could then get everything going. So that was one of the projects. One of the other projects was a game design idea, lo and behold. Uh, another design that I was throwing out to them. And then the third... Not necessarily tied into my game design was the opportunity to uh, provide to Williams the license for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So when I wound up getting a phone call in March of 1988, which totally came out of the blue, I thought that it was either for the game, it was for the magazine, or potentially it was for the license. And instead, it was Marty Glazman and Ken Fidesma calling and asking me if I wanted to uh, come on board as the director of marketing. Now, this the Teenage Ninja thing, that, that didn't go to your company. That no, it didn't, didn't. You know, so, I mean, uh, I guess I'm confused there. What, what happened there? Well, I had non- gone to Toy Fair in 1987. And was just looking at seeing, all right, what's going to be hot a year from now? Because back then, Toy Fair were, you know, items and toys and merchandise and things that were yet to to make it into the marketplace. Uh, one property was uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which I thought was, God, that's inventive and everything, but that's Disney. Didn't think that they would ever go for it. Uh, the other was, uh, I think it was a Spielberg film. And Jim, I'm going to need your help on this one because I think it just escaped me. Uh, Val Kilmer was in it, uh, and it was like with uh, dragons and things. Oh shoot! It was a fantasy movie. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, Mr. Shelberg, I have found as a memory like a steel trap. I understand. <laughs> as is mine. Sometimes my trap is shut, though, and <laughs> in this particular instance, it is. Yeah, you know, oh, one-word is... title, and it's on the tip of my tongue, but it's not there. Anyway, and I thought that that was going to be a little bit edgy, and then I wound up encountering Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which I thought, God, this is really delightful. This, this is really, you know, kooky. Yeah, a couple Ninja of guys Turtles. starting with, you know, black and white little, you know, drawings and things, and they're mounting, you know, a major campaign to see if they can get her off the ground. I met with the company representing... The, the property and said, would you guys be interested if I could get a pinball company to, to want to do something? I was like, sure. And I said, okay. And I said, you know, I don't, know, I don't think there'd be a lot of money, not knowing anything about licensing at that time in Alaska. 
But I felt, all right, we've kind of had a connection. I don't think a lot of people were paying too much attention to them back then, and they weren't. Uh, and uh, that's when I went to Williams to say, hey, and by the way, I have access to, I can get you, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And, uh, of course, it was met with blank stares because nobody had heard of it. And I said, yeah, but this is going to be the next hot, big thing. And, you know, subsequently, uh, Konami came out with the video game. Uh, Data East came out with uh, the pinball. And the rest, as they say, is history. And they were sitting there with, you know, going, uh, duh, this guy, maybe he knows his stuff. Maybe well, we should hire him. <laughs> what's, well, what's interesting is that I, I was truthfully hired not for licensing. I mean, I was hired to, to do marketing. I think that Marty Glazman, uh, who is the uh, vice president of marketing and sales, understood where his strength was and still is today. Uh, he's an incredibly good salesman. Uh, but, uh, you know, one of his strong suits wasn't necessarily marketing and all the rest of that. And uh, he really believed that I could come in and between the two of us, we would make one heck of a team, if you will, and one heck of a, uh, of a person covering all of the functionality of what could and should be existing in a game company, let alone any company. So, uh, you know, I got the call on a Monday, um, kind of said I needed some time, got a call on a Tuesday and talked a little bit more. Um, and when I didn't get the call on Wednesday, that's when it really struck because I was kind of, uh, I won't say ambivalent, but I was hesitant to really make the leap. And uh, not having the call on Wednesday uh, got to me, and I realized, you know what, I want this. And fortunately, Ellen, my wife, was willing to go along, and she knew I always wanted to come back to the Midwest. Uh, and Thursday, I wound up calling and saying, okay, let's do it. And we kind of negotiated dollars a little bit differently than we had before, which had never been the sticking point to begin with, but it was fine. And uh, I wound up, uh, as I said, uh, Couple of weeks later. So, what was your first? Uh, what was your first license? Uh, license work with Williams. What was the first thing that you licensed? Uh, first thing I went after was Batman in 1988. But you didn't get that. Nope. I turned it down. Oh, you turned it down. Yeah. Why? I had deep familiarity with what Tom Neiman had been able to accomplish at Bally back in the mid to late 70s, early 80s when they really kind of bust out with, uh, with different licensed themes. My belief was that there's really no budget that exists for the game companies to do outreach and get exposure and visibility and awareness in the consumer marketplace. But if I could get a business alliance with a licensing partner based on a film or God only knows what and ride their coattails, that would be wonderful. We could really, you know, create something that uh, there would be public awareness for. And uh, again, kind of going through things. A couple of years before the movie came out, actually before it was even cast, I had caught something somewhere about Batman coming. And uh, while I was taking a trip, actually, with Marty up to Minnesota to meet with some company, only to find out that they were only going to be uh, one of the companies producing some type of merchandise and that we needed to talk to Warner Brothers. And uh, wound up searching things out, contacting Warner Brothers, telling them, I had, telling them I had an interest. And as it got cast with Michael Keaton and with Jack Nicholson, 
I made a very big issue about I want to be on the cereal boxes, I want to be on the toys, I want to be whatever. Um, you know, um, you say we'll, I we'll, want we'll, to be. We'll give away pinball machines. You want the pinball machines on the cereal boxes? And yep. Stuff. Yep. Absolutely. And they didn't like that. No, they loved it. The problem was that there was a prohibition based on the contract with Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson that uh, they were not going to do any kind of uh, licensed merchandise. So if I wanted to feature them on the artwork and not use the cartoon characters or something else, uh, I was fine as long as there wasn't any promotional things involved. So if you go back even to the first generation of toys, they're much more generic Batman and, and Joker characters than it was the absolute likeness of these, you know, actors. Well, then, how did Data East do that? Because though they don't have Keaton on there, well, they have Keaton in. Oh, they were they were fine because for them it wasn't mandatory as it was for me. My belief, I don't want to pay money and get nothing in return. Right. So for them, obviously, it wasn't a deal breaker not having the opportunity to be involved in any kind of crossover promotions. They just did it the way the industry had done it for you know years previous. Right. We're going to give you money. You're going to give us some artwork. We're going to produce a pinball machine. Thank you. Take care. So long. Have a good life. Right. Right. So uh, the toughest part in going through the process was Neil Nicastro. Uh, at that time, you know, the president of the company. Uh, what, he, what he was driving a Batmobile to work, saying, "Yeah, we got it." Yeah. No. 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 <laughs> Neil's comment was he did not believe in licenses. Didn't think we should do it, as uh, he said, because truthfully, and I kind of started on this little quest just as a side thing. Uh, you know, look where it got Bally, and you know, six months later, we had acquired the amusement game division uh, from uh, from Bally. We got Bally Midway, and his belief was it didn't do them any good. You know, they've kind of basically gone belly up, and we're taking the scraps. So it, it became a much more arduous cast to say, you know what? I think we can do like a few licenses a year. It doesn't have to be every game. Let's be really selective. And my approach again was, and we're going to be able to multiply the visibility, the reach, and the frequency of what we're doing by being involved in these types of programs. I just don't want to do it the way that Valley had done it before. So, um, you know, the first license that actually came into the marketplace was uh, Elvira uh, in 1989. And the uh, party monsters. Yeah. Now, who came up? You know, of all the licenses to get in the world, that wouldn't have been on the top of my list. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't even have thought of that one. Well, it was interesting. I wound up getting a phone call. Uh, I had gone to a licensing show by then and gotten somewhat familiar, at least on the periphery, of uh, you know some of the people that were involved in the business uh, from the studio side and so on. Had actually in uh, I guess it was '88. Um, had begun conversation with Lucas, which eventually resulted in us uh, doing Indiana Jones, but uh, was uh, talking to someone who represented, you know, Cassandra Peterson, and thought, you know, nice people. She's really into pinball. Uh, she was doing a lot of things back then. Uh, there was a movie coming, and they were, you know. She's going to be on the uh, the Tonight Show, and we'll publicize and promote the pinball machine. She does Knott's Berry Farm every Halloween, and uh, we'll promote the pinball there. And I was like, well, this is cool. And more importantly, she'll come to the trade show and make a personal appearance. I like that a lot. I can generate some, some publicity that way. And uh, 
that was actually the first license, and it made perfect sense as a ballet game just based on their history of uh, ample women that were featured in the artwork. Was she an expensive license? No. No, I mean, it's all relative. Right, but I mean, i I, I got to imagine that getting Indiana Jones must have cost a pile of money compared to getting, no. you know, Elvira. Actually not. No, why? Uh, I, oh. I basically set up uh, a policy of parameters for all the licenses that were all within the same relative amount of dollars. Um, whether it was Indiana Jones or uh, Elvira or World Cup Soccer or Shadow or any of them. Uh, there really was not too much of a disparity in the dollar amounts. That was just the way that I wanted to uh, to approach things. If they wanted to do a pinball machine, then I could deliver numbers anywhere from 10 to 15 or 20,000 units um, and get them visibility and coincidentally promote me, me meaning the game and the industry and the company, uh, so that we were part of the fan club for Terminator 2. Um, we were, you know, celebrities being there for the gala red carpet. Uh, we were there for the uh, the same process for the premiere, the Hollywood premiere with the Klieg lights and the red carpet for Adam's family. And had done uh, Kiss FM the morning of with uh, Pat Lawler and Larry and John and myself all being with, uh, God, I'm trying to remember the, uh, the DJ. Anyway, uh, on his radio show and being part of a one-off magazine, The Adams Family, that was going to be printed to about a quarter of a million people where we gave away a pinball machine. The same thing for T2, where we gave away a pinball machine. So the kinds of cross-promotions that I was able to do, uh, whether it was uh, being involved in Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS, uh, where we provided pinball machines in New York City for uh, Peter Townsend and others that were doing a benefit, and again, the, uh, the local uh, rock radio station uh, with celebrities playing the pinball machines and people doing pledges and so on. All of that was always part and parcel. We were on, uh, I think it was 17 million juice boxes for high C with uh, arch rivals and I want to say police force. Uh, we were involved with uh, promotion and in fact one of the appetizing and appealing things with Elvira was that she was a spokesperson that year for uh, Coca-Cola and we were involved in a national promotion with them. So the things that I really believed in, I was able to follow up on. And uh, you know, that was the part that was most gratifying because it, it provided us the impetus and began that process where we garnered a heck of a lot of publicity. We had TV crews in almost weekly uh, doing interviews and footage at the plant, talking to the designers and so on. Uh, articles and features running in Life Magazine, Smithsonian, um, God, you know, the list goes on and on. Newspapers from everywhere. Uh, that was one of my quests, one of my areas of involvement. And I took a lot of pride in the fact that uh, we kind of put pinball back on the map after it had been dormant for a long period of time. We're going to take a little break from our interview with Roger Sharp of Williams Valley Midway Licensing and Marketing Department, and we'll be right back after these words. 
Hey George, I just had to call and tell you about this really great magazine I got. It's called the Pin Game Journal, and it's the only magazine dedicated totally to pinball. It's got great articles and interviews with designers and everything. No George, I won't loan you my copy. Who knows where you'll take it to. You're going to have to go to PinGameJournal.com and get your own subscription. But George, the guy says that each issue will get mailed whenever he feels like it. What's the deal with that? Alright George, I gotta go. Gotta call Elaine and tell her. I can't believe how good this magazine is. Okay, we're back with Roger Sharp of Williams Valley Midway Licensing and Marketing Department. Now, what about your competitor, Data East? They seem to really uh, dive into the, the whole licensing thing. Um, you know, like, everything everything they did seemed like it was licensing after, you know, after 90 or 91. It seemed like everything was licensing. What yeah, that became a prerequisite for them. I think that they followed the path that Bally did, which is, uh, you know, everything has to be a license. Uh, you need that just to get the uh, the awareness, if you will hopefully get the receptivity in the marketplace that you're picking the right license. Well, I mean, uh, how did you guys feel that, you know, you'd see them doing that? Did that have any influence on you guys? But by and large, if you take a look at the portfolio, we still did original themed games. There were only a couple of occasions where I think that it was like, oh, we have to have a license. But that was never the process for us. The process always was uh, meshing together uh, design teams and uh, what it was that they wanted to do as a subject. I mean, Dennis jumped right in for Elvira. Um, I know that uh, God, Greg Ferris and a whole group of other guys just beat me up unmercifully about Gilligan's Island. You mean they wanted that one really bad? Yeah, they did. Absolutely. Uh, it was a game designed by uh, Dan Langway, uh, who's no longer with us. Uh, it was like a brainiac type of thing, which became the, the jungle run, if you will, this great device. And Greg just had this great notion of being able to kind of create a, a Gilligan's Island type of uh, episode and knew that it was something that kind of uh, hit at uh, part of our target audience. Now, okay. And uh, we wound up, I wound up reaching out to Turner, and uh, we had Bob Denver come into Chicago into the studio to do the speech for us, and it wound up being a very successful game. So I think that, you know, w when you have that blending in, uh, you know, Mark Ritchie diving in on Indiana Jones, John Trudeau for Congo, which I really wanted, uh, happened to be a freak for monkeys and things, and had to do that one. And John was great with it, but John absolutely wanted to do Creature from the Black Lagoon. So I think that, you know, when you can bring all of that together and it's not just a work for hire where you walk in on some day and you're told that, uh, oh, your next project is going to be Giant Mnemonic. Well, really? I don't know that. I mean, George wanted to do Giant Mnemonic. The idea of doing a glove and a mechanical device, come on, here's a guy that recreated a Corvette engine, if you will, down to the detail, uh, with the blessing of Pat Lawler and Neil Nicastro, who are both, you know, Corvette fans. Well, how hard was it to get the Corvette license? Uh, for me, uh, I've never really had too many problems getting any of the licenses I wanted. Okay, well, here's the big one. Popeye. Who wanted Popeye? Uh, Python. Oh, God, that just kind of figures, doesn't it? Uh, Python just thought it would be wonderful. It was Popeye saving the world. Yeah, that's where I was going with this. I, I, you know, I watched Popeye when I was a kid. Never once did he save the world. Popeye was about beating up bad guys and getting laid. That's what Popeye was all about. 
I, he, I, he liked the skinny chicks, too. I understand. Yeah, but he never once saved the world, ever. And he didn't give a rat's butt about pollution or, well, you know, our way of taking any of that a, stuff. A green stance, and Barry had some, uh, some interesting ideas, at least mechanically. Uh, let's face it, I mean, Bugs Bunny's birthday bash uh, wasn't a great success either for us, although I think that John really did uh, a somewhat innovative play field with, you know, the two levels. Uh, but, you know, it kind of went over like a lead balloon. So I think that, you know... I like Bugs sometimes Bunny you can, a lot better than uh, Popeye. Well, yeah, I think that most people probably don't have uh, real strong uh, regrets that Popeye is not probably out there in the uh, mass quantities that uh, it might have been otherwise. <laughs> so I think that, you know, again, it wasn't as if it was, you know, I go back to this, that it was something foisted upon anybody. I mean, you know, Steve Ritchie, originally the conversation was for total recall. The timing was wrong, and we got an inside track to do T2. Uh, the deal with that was flying out to California because they wouldn't release the uh, the script, and flying out with, uh, I think it was George Petro for the video game, and uh, Steve Ritchie and myself, reading the script because uh, my, my promise to them was, I said, if we like the script, then maybe we'll consider doing it. Uh, and uh, absolutely loved it. It was like, God, there's, is there a game here or is there a game here? And uh, admittedly there was, but I mean, it was something that was hard-edged. It was it was quintessential Steve Ritchie. Yeah, it was a great game. I mean, so unbelievable. I that, you know, and, and roller games, well, that was my thing, because uh, American Gladiators are roller games. Well, American Gladiators, I don't know, but roller games, God, roller derby, I remember that growing up. That's going to be huge. It's going to be like wrestling. There's girls, and there's guys, and there's costumes and teams. Let's do it, and getting Steve into it, and then, uh, you know, unfortunately... It was it was a good game, but the uh, the license did not help us in any way, shape, or form. Well, was so, the uh, this TV show like canceled when the machine came? Yeah, out? I think it lasted for the one season. However, the thirteen or sixteen episodes they took it on the road and what have you, but it never it never took hold. So you know there were those kind of failed things as well because you're going out there and you're taking a risk. There was a lot of licenses. Trust me, that we wanted turning down. Uh, what were some good ones turned mind, down? But more of them that were you know. Here's going to be this great blockbuster, you know, TV series, and thank God you don't do it, or this movie that you know kind of comes and goes. Well, what uh, did you turn down that that you maybe regret it? Um, God, what did I turn down that I regret? You know what? I I would probably, given the chance over again, would have done American Gladiators and not Roller Games. Um, that's first. Although I, I have a great relationship with the gal who I worked with on that, and you know, now 20 years later, we're doing some other projects together, so you know, that's a good thing. Um, I probably would have gone after Stargate and uh, not The Shadow. Uh, it would have meant a totally different type of game for Brian to, to design, but uh, meeting with Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin, and I had had familiarity with Universal Soldier, which I thought was an okay movie, and I'm reading the script and hearing what they're going to do, and I, I just didn't believe it. Uh, it. It just didn't resonate with me, but The Shadow was like, God, I knew Walter Gibson. I'd done a uh, piece featuring magic and, and had visited with him uh, up in Upper State New York for GQ. Uh, incredible individual when it comes to that world of magic and what his role was with Houdini and so on, and Basically, being uh, you know one of the shining lights between uh, behind the, the scene for the radio serial, and here's this movie coming out. God, it's a 
the classic is. It's going to be huge. Well, well, the game, actually, Shadow is a killer game. Oh, that's what I'm saying. The game was great. The movie is forgettable with Jonathan Winters as the cab driver and Alec Baldwin. And I, I like the movie, actually. And you know what? The, the one regret I have in the game is that damn translate. You know, I mean, come on. you got Kim Basinger in this movie. Yep. Kim Basinger. And you put Alec... I don't know. Wait, who was in charge of that? Was that you? <laughs> because I'm pissed off. <laughs> I'll tell you on that one. I understand, but you have to go with the main talent. And Kim Basinger, absolutely. I tend to agree. Oh, she is the talent. <laughs> she, uh, she was, and she probably could have been played up a little bit bigger than she was. Yeah. <laughs> Can you get that one redesigned for me, that translate? Uh, let's look into it. Yeah, I think we need that one. <laughs> you know, that, with that guy, it just freaks me out when I play that game, and I look up, and he's watching me. Now, I don't mind the babes watching me, but... Uh, the, the, the Baldwin guys, I just, you know, I don't, I don't want anything to do with them. I understand. You know, although he was a delight to meet, we were on set, uh, and you know, it all worked out. Of course, you know, and we got the prominence of Sandra Bullock for Demolition Man. So, for those people who are like Sandra Bullock, there she is in uh, all of her glory. Then, as her breakout role, along with uh, Snipes and Stallone. Yeah, I, I like her actually. She, so I think but she's uh, no Kim you know, Basinger, though. I'm sorry? She, I like her, but she's no Kim Basinger. No, that's, uh, for those who are remembering back to nine and a half weeks, I would agree. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Exactly. You should have done that pinball machine. Yeah, right. Yeah, right after Playboy, right? <laughs> it's going to be the next pin 2000. It was going to be the pin 3000 game. Yeah. yeah. No, so I guess, you know, to, to further answer the question, were there any other, you know, licenses that I wanted to do? I'm, you know, I'm sure that there probably were at various points in time. But I would say that by and large, you know, the stuff that we wound up pursuing, we wound up getting. And, uh, you know, that was gratifying. It was a testament to the quality of work that we had going into our product, the, the level of design, talent, and creativity, uh, our role in the marketplace having probably at that time about 85, 95% of the world marketplace for pinball, uh, really being a market leader. Uh, being very innovative, uh, getting a heck of a lot of media so that, you know, suddenly brought some credibility, brought some clout into the proceedings and, uh, being able to get the types of assets that we needed. I mean, uh, well, was there... when you can get Arnold Schwarzenegger to do speech for you, uh, uh, that's kind of a, a nice thing. And when he is, you know, actually there working on the approvals for what you are submitting, uh, that's kind of nice out of the, you know, the work schedule and the work day. Um, and, and, and again, I mean, for, for all the projects, uh, we just had an enormous amount of, uh, of support. And I think that, uh, that made it all worthwhile. What about, were there any themes that you didn't get that Diddy slash Sega got that you said, oh man, I, I can't believe we let that one slip by or that you said, Man, I'm glad they got that one and we didn't. Well, Last Action Hero comes instantly to mind for one that I did not want and we got a pitch to us. Uh, Lethal Weapon really didn't want. Turn that one down. Why didn't you want Lethal? You know, I mean, it was like, okay, I just... It, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary in terms of the films. Uh, to say, let's do a gun game. Um, and forgetting about the fact that it became, you know, Lethal Weaponator. And people affectionately called it just because of its similarity to what Steve had done with Terminator. Um, 
I think probably, you know, Jurassic Park was something that, uh, you know, no one really wanted internally. Uh, I, I used to do some hard selling sometimes and try to justify, you know, why it is I think we should go after this. It, it was it was kind of a two-way street, the way it was structured. Uh, I would kind of go back and meet with you know, the various designers and creative people and what have you, whether it was pinball or video, and say, hi, these are things that are coming up. What do you guys think? Um, and uh, there would be times when they would come back to me saying, hi, I really want to do this. Uh, Bill Fitzmaurice, absolutely needing to do one and do Doctor Who. Uh, John Trudeau absolutely positively needing to do Judge Dredd. I kind of had some familiarity with Doctor Who, but I wasn't a fan. Uh, I did not need to go to you know one of the conventions. It was an experience. Yeah, that's a that's a freaky title, Doctor Who. I mean, I'm not. I know that there's definitely a large fan base, but I think there's also a hell of a lot of people that didn't even know anything about that show. Well, trust me. I mean, the same for Judge Dredd. Yes, uh, exactly. We came out before the movie. Right. So it wasn't even a question of working with the studio and getting Stallone. I mean, whether that would have been a positive or a negative anyway. It was, here's this, you know, this cult sensation. It was like, huh? And I, I had no, you know, no bearing at all. I mean, one of the best ones, and it had nothing to do with pinball, was going out with John Newcomer to Denver to a Highlander convention because he wanted to do a sword game as a video game. And uh, that was kind of bizarre unto itself. Totally different breed of people than you would find at a pinball expo, let alone at a Doctor Who or a Star Trek convention. So, I think that, uh. Well, speaking of which, how nothing... was Star Trek? I'm sorry? Oh, I was just gonna sidetrack for one second. Hold that thought. Because I wanna try to remember back to all of the Sega Data East licenses and see, was there absolutely anything that we had wanted? Apollo 13? I'm sorry? Apollo 13, did that get offered to you? Yeah, but uh, I would never do a license without getting all the talent. And the idea of having Tom Hanks behind the mask really didn't uh, resonate with me. Hmm. Uh, you have to have likenesses. I'm sorry. Right. And if you look at all of our games, all the key people are there. Indiana Jones. I mean, that is Harrison Ford. It's, it's Sean Connery. It's Kieran Allen. It's everybody. And John you know, Rice-Davies coming into the studio to do the speech for us. Um, I would never, ever do those kinds of shortcuts. Uh, I would never have done Back to the Future, taking nothing away. I think Gary looks great on the back glass. But, uh, you know, it, it would have had to have been, you know, Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd and what have you. Well, what about, what about Dirty Harry? I mean, you know, I've heard the story where it, you, you couldn't get, you couldn't get Eastwood to do the voice and you actually had a voiceover actor that did an unbelievable job and then you had to scrap that and actually when 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 Eastwood actually was willing to do the voice, and then it didn't turn out quite the way you wanted, or something. That's the story I heard. I mean, uh, you can interesting me. story. All I know is that he was doing filming in Iowa for the Bridges of Madison County, and I was getting phone calls on an almost weekly basis from a person at Warner Brothers saying, "I just talked to Clint. He wants to know about the pinball machine. How's it coming?" He's working on a multi-million-dollar movie with Meryl Streep. You're telling me that he's calling you from production, filming, and God only knows what, to ask about the pinball machine? Like this is the most important thing in his life? Just curious, just wanting you to know. So, uh... So they were really good uh, liars there, or really bad liars there, aren't they? No, I mean, uh, he was very much into it. Uh, you know, we submitted the artwork, we told him ahead of time that we were going to try to 
kind of compromise between his younger look as opposed to, you know, where he had gotten to. And uh, uh, speech, that is a new one to me because I know that he did go into Studio Forest back at uh, Tahama uh, and Malposa uh, after they were in post-production on Bridges and uh, did, did all the speech. I mean, part of the thing that we did, or at least that I used to do, was uh, you would get a pinball machine for your efforts. Uh, customized one. So, some of the software speech prompts that people have heard for Arnold's game, uh, much of that is his. Or if you have the uh, the special Star Trek uh, software, you get to hear the personalized speech that exists for each of the seven main actors. Can because I, that was their payoff. Or can I please? Rick Moranis on the Flintstones and getting the phone call saying, you know, Roger, I've had second thoughts. We just live in an apartment in Manhattan. We really don't have room for the pinball machine. And basically, get, you know, talking to him and saying, you gotta be kidding, you gotta take a pinball machine. I had a studio apartment and I had five games in my studio apartment. I'm sorry. I'm not taking no for an answer. You're getting a pinball machine. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it was those kinds of things, or tragically, having to deal with Raul Julia's uh, widow, uh, because he had passed away, and saying, hi, you know, I'm so sorry, and you know, we, we have a game, we'll wait. You just tell me when. But uh, I think that this is something you're going to want. And, you know, he did special speech you know, to you and to the children, and whatever. So, I mean, it was somewhat tearful. Did, did they ever take delivery? Yeah, they did. So, basically, you're saying, and I've heard this, but I've never been able to actually confirm it, that the home ROMs for all the games were basically... If you type in the right flipper codes, the game converts itself to the party that's playing it. Yep, it could. Yep, it could. That's not a definitive yes or no. <laughs> well, <laughs> there are things that, truthfully, even I'm not aware of, or I have found out about it well after the fact. Okay, because, like, for example, let's take Demo Man. Okay. The famous home ROMs for Demo Man. Uh, you're aware of them, I assume, right? No, tell me, please. Okay. Well, there's a set of Demo Demo Man ROMs that um, swears like a sailor. Okay. And what I've heard is, and, and, and it. And that's swearing from Snipes and Stallone. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. And kind of back up. The way I kind of learned about this stuff is Duncan Brown and Cameron Silver. We're actually at my house one day, and at the time I didn't really know who they were. And um, they, they kind of they were on their way to go to Marvin's, and they uh, I knew Duncan lightly, and he said, you know, can we stop by? I've got a friend, Cameron. Do you mind if he stops by too? And I said, yeah, sure, come on over. So they're playing games, and I, I noticed, you know, they're playing games in my basement, and then we go to Marvin's, and this was right when Star Wars Episode One had come out. Okay. And I'm standing there with Duncan. Duncan does this flipper coat, so you know. He, Taps it up. The machine comes up and says, Hi, Duncan. And then, you know, he plays his game, and I'm still kind of watching, and Cameron does the same thing. The game says, Hi, Cameron. Yeah, you know, I mean, it actually comes up on the screen with this, like, you know, the game knows who they are. And I'm like, right. what, What's going on here? You know, I'm like... I mean, there was so much hidden stuff that the guys buried and put in. Right. So, uh, my, I mean, my understanding swearing. is that that the Demo Man ROMs, actually, if you have the right flipper codes, and you enter them that the game will actually assume a whole different personality. Yep. Well, um... God, what's the game? Uh, 
Medieval or Attack from Mars, Lyman's Lament. Right. So. Right. Yeah, and that's a great mode, by the way, because he, that's yes, one code I mean, that I'm, he's I'm, willing to share. I'm sorry? That's a code that he's willing to share. Right. You know, I mean, there's, obviously there's these other codes that, you know, they're not willing to share that, you know, they're, they're you know, unbeknownst to us regular humans. Well, and I count myself as a regular human because there have been times in, you know, people's houses or whatever, and it's like, what? Are you kidding me? Right. What did that just say? <laughs> How did that get out? Right. How did that get past approvals? <laughs> okay. So, in your collection, how many games do you have in your basement? Uh, in the or in total, they don't have to be in the basement. It could be in well, other people's basements. Well, it's it's they tend to populate the house. Uh, I guess I have a couple of dozen. Are they all like? Do you have all your game plan games? Yeah, I have uh, Global Warfare, uh, Sharpshooter, Sharpshooter Two, Cyclops, and I have Barracor from Williams that I did. I had Stingray from uh, Chicago Coin Stern that I did. Um, so I have those, and I have games that I've worked on uh, in some way, shape, or form. Uh, so yeah, I mean the collection is uh, from 1871, Improvements in Bagatelle. Montague Redgrave's game, uh, through a couple of other 30s games, uh, Mills Official. Uh, many thanks to Mark Weiner for putting things uh, into immaculate uh, shape and condition. He truly is uh, a gifted master at doing those kinds of uh, restorations. I love one Mark. He's he's the best. He's the ni- one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Yeah, but uh, I have the pinbot that uh, Peter Max had done uh, the uh, the cabinet uh, artwork for that uh, the company had uh, purchased for $13,000 to benefit charity um, for, I think it was Papa 3, Steve Epstein's uh, tournament in New York City, uh, on a blind auction for, I want to say it was Variety Clubs International to help uh, young children. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of like an, uh, an eclectic collection. Uh, Fast Break, which uh, I absolutely do love. Uh, I think it was... Uh, not giving it just due, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. Uh, Evil Knievel, uh, Buckaroo, Funland, uh, NASCAR, Pirates of the Caribbean, Star Trek, uh, Star Wars Episode One, Monster Bash. Uh, it's kind of like all over the lot. Okay, now here's another one. And then what Joshua is... has, I think, 15 in his place, and Zachary now has six. And I think he's just buying a seventh. I think he's getting a... Uh, a Cyclops, which is going to be at somebody else's house. Is now we're all that my wife will deal with. <laughs> Are all your games the games that you got at at the time you designed them, or did you have to go back and buy them? Um, yes and yes. Okay. Um, Global Warfare. I never realized it was uh, they were ever built. So my many thanks to not only Jim Shelburne but Gary Flower, and letting me know that that game actually existed because I just knew it as a drawing. Uh, as a wide body for game plan. It was never really finished. Uh, the game rules are there, but the geometry, my God, uh, I never would have let it go out the door, and that one found out about it. And Jim helped me. Uh, who is the fellow in Michigan? Uh, oh, uh, Wiley? Is it Wiley? Yeah, it was Wiley, Mike Wiley. Okay. Well, my my... My eternal gratitude for, number one, having it, having it in working shape. It's kind of amazing uh, being familiar with the drawing and then actually seeing it in, in real life. So that one I got after the fact. 
the both sharpshooters were, were new in the box. Uh, Cyclops was off of location from the Broadway arcade, only because that was the one that functioned the best. Um, Star Trek was supposed to be mine, but... Uh, You're talking about Next Gen we, or we the original? To, no, the uh, Star Trek Next Gen. Okay. Uh, but we ran out of games, and it went to the ad agency, and uh, when the ad agency person moved, Todd Ford, to Las Vegas, he called, and we arranged for me to actually buy that from him so I could get the game that was supposed to be mine. Uh, Star Wars, uh, episode one, uh, I was supposed to get one and never did, and a surprise from, uh, my sons and my, uh, nephew Darren in Ohio, and, uh, I got woke up in the middle of the night and was told to come downstairs, and lo and behold, in the living room there was, uh, Star Wars as a birthday present. So that was kind of nice. And, you know, when the, when the whole Pinball 2000 thing kind of came around, I mean, were you in, you know, during the, you know, were you there when, when, when Pat and George, you know, walked in with this model and? Yeah, I was in fact the first person they showed it to. And what was your reaction? Um, I thought it was great. I got it immediately. The hollow pin worked. It was like, wow, okay, I can see it. Who didn't get it immediately? Um, I think everybody got it. I think there were a couple of camps. And, you know, whether or not this has been made public or not, I know that, you know, John Papazuk had some very definitive ideas as to the direction he wanted to take, uh, you know, with a color monitor and so on. And I think that, uh, you know, we were beyond that point. We needed something that was going to be much yeah, more interactive. He was more the baby pack type thing. In yeah, kind of. I mean, yeah. I, I don't believe that it ever got to the point of really being fleshed out as to what it, you know, it might have been just as a platform. Right. Um, I know that, you know, costs would have been, uh, you know, of some significance, although probably the same because you're still dealing with a monitor and, uh, you know, in a pinball 2000. But having said that, I think that, uh, there was enough put into the platform, uh, for it to be something that everybody understood. Yeah, this can work. Uh, it's still going to be a mechanical pinball machine. Uh, you know, my, my regrets to some people who tended to uh, label it as being, uh, you know, video pinball. It really wasn't video pinball. You were still hitting solid objects that just happened to uh, correlate to particular video imagery. But, uh, you know, if I'm blasting away a Martian uh, by hitting a left ramp, I still have to make the left ramp. Right, um, right. So I think that, uh, you know, it, it was... It was a great start for something that probably had uh, much more viability and legitimacy than maybe people give it credit for. Oh, I, I think it was an incredible it. platform. Um, I'm sorry? I, I think it was an incredible platform. Yeah, but most people condemned it before they even saw it. Yeah, you know, the, the problem is, is like, you know, you made two, two machines. That would be like measuring WPC based on, you know, Funhouse and Bride of Pinbot. You know, I mean, if, if if you wanted to look at the WPC platform and all you got to see was Funhouse and Bright Pinbot, and you didn't get to see anything after that, and and make a decision on whether that platform should progress, that was kind of like what the, to me what they did to Pinball 2008. Mean something like uh, saying personal computers can't survive the PC Junior or the Lisa. Right, something like that. You know, I mean, it's just I, I don't know. I, I I just saw it as 
something that could have been really, really incredible. Well, and, you know, give Pat and his team all the credit in the world for what Wizard Blocks was and might have been if it had ever been made for the real world. Pat really took a different approach. And the notion of needing to have a center area for the screen, uh, you know, Pat brought it in as much more of a visual compliment and, you know, giving Pete uh, a lot of credit Petrovsky uh, for what he and Tom were working on on Playboy. Um, yeah, I mean, there was uh, a definite uh, maturing of the technology. I think that uh, if we had been able to continue moving forward, that uh, we probably would have seen something that people would have absolutely said, okay, this, this is kind of neat and fun. There would have been the ability to do kits, which was one of the major selling points for the Pinball 2000 platform anyway. So at the time, you know, pinball was, you know, in the early 90s, to the you know the mid to late nineties, pinball was basically financing the slot machine division at Williams. And then um, all, and then all well, kind of. I mean, understand we weren't in the business, right? But well, you, you were trying to get in the business, and IGT was trying to make your life as difficult as possible. Yeah, and uh, thankfully they did so because it allowed Williams or WMS now to be much more successful than the company ever would have been by uh, putting in the screws on the Thomas patent. Uh, the plan was to do conventional slot machines. In the background was to do video slots, which had been successful in Australia and had never come really here in any, you know, measure of success or penetration in the marketplace. And when the company wasn't allowed to move forward with conventional slots, all the effort, all the manpower went into developing video slots and you had games like Reel Em In and Jackpot Party. They came out and set a new standard and immediately gave WMS a 30% market share. So uh, in attempting to cripple the company, what IGT said was, or what they did was effectively give life and sustenance to the company. Yeah, they made you, they made you get up well, on they your made toes. Well, they made us a success. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, what, uh, what, you know, thank God for doing what they did. Otherwise... Would the company have ever gotten around to it? Yes, somewhere down the road. Would it have had the kind of impact initially? Probably not. But the and problem been, is, you know, is that as probably five to seven years behind where we are today as, you know, a significant factor in the marketplace. I've seen Neil subsequent to it, and uh, I think that if you ask him today, one of the things that he would say to you is that he probably made a mistake in pulling the plug when he did. Really? Yep. I mean, Neil really had his heart in Coinop. I mean, that's what he grew up around. I think the issue became one of you have a publicly traded stock that is in the leisure time entertainment industry, and you have ups and downs, and the ups and downs absolutely radically alter stock price and expectation. The same way that uh, Time Warner has gotten hammered because of AOL, Viacom has gotten hit. I mean, look at major corporations, the combining of Universal and NBC. Um, it becomes a, a, a situation that is nightmarish. And when you have seasonality for some product, uh, it makes it that much more difficult. And when you have uncertainty for some product and you're not bringing in measurable profit to the bottom line and you have, you know, expensive uh, operating expenses because, you know, manufacturing pinball is not inexpensive, 
Allie went through it. Uh, most definitely. As a public health company. Uh, uh, with uh, Gottlieb, they went through it with Columbia Pictures and then Coca-Cola. And finally they abandoned them and, and think back to when that was. That was in the beginning of the 80s. Right. Uh, didn't even give it a chance to, to live or thrive or survive. Well, so, so I think you're that, saying that, that Nick Castro, you know, there, he, he didn't have any... He wasn't trying to push pinball out the door. No, he was trying to push everybody to a solution. Give me something where we can show some dramatic improvement in growth. Give me something where we can change things over. Look, take a look at Twilight Zone and what Pat Lawler tried to do. You know, the replacement marketplace is a great way to go into business. You have conventional pinball machines, and through cycles, through technology changes, well, I had electromechanical, but now everything is alphanumeric solid state. I guess I have to get rid of these old games. Oh, I have alphanumerics, now it's dot matrix display. Oh, I guess I have to get rid of these. Pat's intention with Twilight Zone was I'm going to give them a new shape, a different thing to do that's going to become part and parcel, and maybe they have to weed out their older games. I mean, you have to try to recycle. Uh, you know, Jim and I were talking earlier today, and I think that one of the issues and one of the problems, and it's a daunting task for Gary Stern or for anybody, and for any of us back then, was how does the player, unsophisticated, out in the real world, differentiate between uh, medieval madness and family guy? I mean, you don't. A lot of what you are seeing as features and functionality on the games are somewhat similar to the uneducated eye. For those of us who are close enough to the hobby or those of us who are ardent players and kind of follow things, we kind of know. But, right. you know, by and large, it becomes much more seamless. Now, if you take a, a drum scoring unit uh, and a game from the 1960s and put it up against anything new, all right, there's a change, there's a difference. If you show them a Pinball 2000, that's a difference. I mean, you could take out a Pinball 2000, put it in a location today, and I guarantee you, that for the average person, it'd be like, wow, that's new. Well, no, it's not. It's eight years old. That's new. Well, so I think, I think that it's a question of really kind of putting things into the proper context. And the problem that you had with pinball was that all the games were kind of like the same. So we're going to go with the color dot matrix. Okay, whoop de do. Does that really change things? Uh, right. You know, it's a problem that, you know, arcade video games had. Everybody was kind of doing the same stuff. The technology was changing. The graphic imagery was changing. It was much more lifelike, much more realistic. But by and large, it was still, you know, still a video game. Still just only a pinball machine. Yeah, and then so came I think Dance Dance now. Revolution, right? I'm sorry? Then came Dance Dance Revolution. Yeah, really. And, and if you think back to what Bandai had done with the original Nintendo system with its exercise mat, that's not anything that's new either. And even Castle... Wolfenstein, which led Rise to Doom and Halo and all the others as first-person shooters, that's all old stuff. But, you know, when you bring it out and it's a new coat of paint, people gravitate to it and they think that it's something that's original and new. And people like me, who unfortunately are incredibly old and sometimes have some <laughs> memory cells that still work, I look at stuff and I just see it as being a derivative from something of, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago or more. Now, now, are you doing any work with Stern and their licensing arms? Sure. Uh, I, I tend to uh, lead two careers. I am uh, licensing brand manager for uh, WMS Gaming. 
So my new game in town is slot machines. And uh, I do licensing for our, our slot products. And uh, I also have my own company uh, where I do consulting. And that consulting is, uh, whether it's licensing related or product design and development or advertising and marketing and promotions, uh, it's, it's all the things that I have an expertise in. And I have, you know, stepped in uh, when asked. Uh, I've, I've had a long, you know, long friendship and relationship with Gary and uh, previously with his dad. Uh, helped a little bit on uh, Terminator 3, uh, NASCAR. Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, so yeah, um, I'm there when possible, but I've also worked with Eugene Jarvis and uh, his crew at Raw Thrills for Fast and the Furious, or for Baytech most recently for a novelty redemption game uh, based on American Idol, or ICE uh, for their NBA uh, Papa Shop basketball game. So it sounds like you're still having fun with this. I love it. You do? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that, look, I still believe in the business, meaning the coin-op business. Uh, I think that there's a marketplace for it. I think that, uh, you know, a lot of people, uh, not only the business people, but also the players have abandoned uh, those venues. Um, and as a result, they've fallen into disrepair. Uh, it's a shame, because I think that if people really had the desire and the belief of wanting to support something that they really enjoy, whether it's pinball, video, or anything, then you make it make it your own personal mission and uh, you know people just don't have the appetite and the desire to do that uh, so having said that if there's some ways that I can do things that can uh, bring some attention to the marketplace on either a product by product basis or something that's technology driven then uh, that's something I want to do I mean it, it, it's a good industry and uh, unfortunately for a variety of different factors it hasn't achieved the stature the sustainability or the level of success that it probably really does deserve, and most people tend to overlook it. You think it's much easier to look at uh, Xbox Live and uh, PSP and the Wii and all the rest of it and say, "God, that's the, that's the hot stuff." You, do you think pinball ever has a chance of resurfacing at Williams? No, never, huh? No, Not no. Any- I mean, you don't have you don't have the the labor involved. Uh, that can work on something as meticulously as a pinball machine needs. I mean, taking enough away from a slot machine, but a lot of it is just electronics and so on. With a pinball, you're really looking at a variety of boards and, and different component parts. I mean, as Gary has often said, you know, it's over 3,000 parts, and uh, it, it takes longer to, to build a pinball machine than it does a Taurus, and, you know, on and on and on. Uh, I think that... Uh, you need, number one, to be a privately held company. You can't be public uh, because you're going to have your down quarters, and that's where Gary is able to, to absolutely survive. If you ever took the company public, uh, you'd be screwed. It would be over in a matter of, I would give it two to three years max before the shareholders would say, hey, time out, sorry, um, because that's the nature of the beast. So I think that... Uh, for private people, you know, whether it's the Wayne Gillers of the world or Gene Cunningham's or John Ross and his guys up in uh, Minnesota that are doing customized pinball machines, if any of them ever get the, uh, the desire to want to really start doing stuff, you know, is there room in the marketplace for pinball machines? Yes. Is there room to absorb more than what is being produced currently? I believe so. 
Uh, is Ultrapin from Global VR going to provide some kind of a niche into that? Who knows? It's an interesting platform. It's pinball, but it's pinball with a difference. And, you know, I'm sure that a lot of people have already made, uh, their, their opinions felt whether they've played it or not, just based on what they've seen, heard, read, or God only knows what. And, uh, you know, sometimes those initial speculations are not always, you know, positive. Uh, to the benefit of anything, whether it's a new movie that opened, that people say, oh my God, what a piece of trash. Terrible. Oh, did you see it? No, but I, I heard about it from somebody, or I saw something in the news somewhere, or I read something in the newspaper, and that's supposed to be just terrible. Oh, okay. Or, conversely, it's supposed to be incredible. It's the greatest, wonderful, and you go to the movie, and it's like, what was he talking about? So, I think everybody has to judge on their own, and I know that that kind of got off the track from... Uh, is there room in the world for Williams to ever consider doing pinball? But uh, hopefully I'm trying to frame it in such a way that uh, I don't see that being a possibility, but I would like to see, you know, there being uh, a healthy and vital marketplace for new pinball. What about, uh, you started Papa. Yep. Uh, what year was that? <sighs> Papa had to be when it really did first start. Uh, was probably around 76, 77. Well, maybe you should explain exactly what it is and what your, you know, it was you and, and your best friend that started it. And why, don't, why don't you give us a little history on the whole thing? Well, uh, <clears throat> the Professional and Amateur Pinball Association. The outgrowth, so it had to be, uh, had to be 77. The outgrowth was, uh, my experience being involved in Super Shooter. And, uh, helping oversee and structure that uh, final tournament that uh, drew in a million players. Um, top 32 players uh, coming into Chicago uh, for, uh, God, what an event. I don't know if footage exists anymore. But that was on live news. I mean, you had ABC, you had CBS, NBC. You had uh, all the major networks there covering this pinball spectacle. Uh, it was It was astounding. You had players, I think the, maybe it was the top 20. Uh, for some reason I said 32, but I think it was like the top 20, uh, players who had competed, uh, in, uh, Latin castles everywhere and had made it through, uh, the regional qualifying or local qualifying to make it to this national event. And the age range was from an 11 year old to a 32 year old. And one woman. That's right, it was 20 because there was 19 guys in this one, uh, one gal. But, uh. It wasn't but, Brooke Shields right after that movie she did, was it? No, no. Just checking. No, was I the name of that movie, Mr. Schober? It was Tilt. Tilt, yeah. Yep. She, she was at Papa one year. Yes, she was. As a matter of fact, the same year that we had the cast of Tommy there. Uh, so, effectively what wound up happening was, and it takes nothing away from Ken Lunsford, who was the champion, but there was a better player over the course of that weekend. And the structure of how Bally had done the finals was, I think it was two out of three games. Uh, last game was on uh, eight ball, and uh, it was total points rather than number of wins. And I think, uh, was it uh, Grillo was the, the guy's name? I forget it. I think it was Joe Grillo. And he won two of the three games, but Ken Lunsford had an amazing ball on the last game, and with total points, he won the win the championship. You know, I thought that was bogus. 
and went back, and there had always been a debate as to who was the better player, Steve Epstein or myself. And I used to say that Steve gets more of the highs, but on a more consistent basis, I am the better and more consistent player. And, uh, well, well, you guys weren't competing in this in that shootout, were you? No, no, no. I never believed, personally for me, and, and this is probably on a much more esoteric, philosophical basis, uh, I never believed in competing on pinball, which is why I never competed in any of the tournaments. To me, pinball was much more special than that, and I didn't want to bring it down to that level or bring it over to that level. Uh, it just had a special place in my heart, and I thought that somehow that would kind of cheapen my relationship to the games if I... And maybe cheapen is not the right word, but there's some word that I'm probably not able to pull out of the air. So, uh, there was, uh, in advance of, uh, the tournament, a fellow by the name of Joe Schick was doing a feature for Games Magazine. And the feature was going to be that, uh, he was beating the best player in the world, which a lot of people thought that I was. And, uh, we set up a meeting, uh, in New York at the Broadway Arcade on a Sunday morning to play pinball, and this guy comes in with his entourage, and Steve Epstein is there. Another very dear friend of ours who was actually instrumental in getting Pop off the ground was a fellow by the name of Lionel Martinez, who was uh, a film editor. I mean, there was a very diverse group of people who used to frequent the Broadway Arcade. Uh, our one common bond was the love of pinball. So anyway, Joe Schick comes in with his entourage. And the way I had done it was, you know, no one, because this, and I think Steve might have had 70 or 80 machines by that time. Uh, and it was the corner store, uh, 52nd and Broadway. Uh, I said, all right, this is how we'll do it. We'll put the names in a hat of all the manufacturers represented. Bally, uh, Playmatic, Williams, all of them. And we'll just pick the name out of the hat, and then we can pick any game from that manufacturer. And we'll play, you know, a three out of five series, I think it was, on, uh, on each of those manufacturers' games. So, I don't know what you're going to pick. You know, it's like all of these games. You know, am I proficient on all of these games? My God, how could that possibly be? Um, and we started, and the first game, I mean, he has his rooting section or whatever else. And, uh, he just destroyed me. And I remember Steve and Lionel taking me outside. It's like, what the heck's going on? I mean, that was just terrible. I was like, I, I don't like this. I mean, this, is, this is terrible. Just go in and just beat his ass. God, you know, you're so much better than that. And I went in, and I think it took about five or six hours for us to finally finish, and I absolutely destroyed him. <laughs> and he was crestfallen. It was like, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do now with the story. We became, and still are, incredible friends. But I told him, I said, if you just wanted to write the story, I would have let you write the story. You can tell everybody that you just trashed me. I mean, it really doesn't matter to me. But when you come in and you make it this thing, I mean, this competition, I said, that was the most grueling, uh, unsatisfying, you know, day that I've ever spent playing pinball. Because I was out to destroy you know, it's not a question of winning or losing. It's just doing better than I can do each and every time. That's what I try to achieve and to try to make some good funky shots that don't exist because the angles are wrong, but somehow I can pull it out my butt and I can do an obtuse angle off of a reverse and make a shot that 
somehow geometrically shouldn't be made. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I enjoyed doing back then. And uh, Joe wanted doing his, his piece. But again, the outgrowth after the tournament was going back to New York. And, you know, I used to hang out a lot at the arcade and play with Steve. And it used to be more or less a pissing contest as to who was better. And, you know, we never kind of took it overly seriously. Um, and it was like, you know what? It would be great to come up with some kind of a scoring, scoring system, like a handicap, like uh, bowling or something. Instead of dealing in raw points, because each game is different, you get 10 points for first, 5 points for second, 0 points for third. From that, Steve and I started talking a real lot about, you know, wouldn't it be great to do leagues? And uh, we kind of coined together the PAPA thing. We need, we need an acronym. We need something. It has to be pinball. It has to be professional. We want this to become professional, like bowling. This is going to be on Saturday afternoons. And without Chris Schenkel doing the play-by-play, it's going to be somebody else, and we are going to, to have this happen. This is going to work because we're going to have this infallible scoring system, this ERA, this handicap, whatever you want to call it, that people will be able to transpose and equalize out different people of different skill levels and different games. And uh, Steve started the first leagues in New York. Um, I want to say probably around 79, 1980, maybe around 81 were the first leagues, and those grew. We wound up going off-site to a fellow by the name of Ron Colucci in Pinebrook, New Jersey. God, I don't know where I'm getting this stuff from. This is great. At least I'm not totally mind-boggled at this stage of my life to pull these things out. Maybe if we did this interview next week, I probably would have lost it all. And <laughs> we need to have some type of special medication. Anyway, uh, we wound up going out to Ron Colucci's place. Uh, had a great arcade in Pinebrook, New Jersey, to see. All right, we know that we have the New York people because the Broadway Arcade was something of a, a famous place, and we were pulling from you know the three-state area, if you will, with people coming in as regulars. So doing the leagues a couple of nights a week and. And Steve had done it in such a way um, where he had women's leagues, he had men's leagues, there was mixed leagues. It was it was awesome. So we wound up going to Ronnie's to see, all right, could we do it with people that are just kind of like somewhat regular players? Will they make the commitment? More importantly, will they make the commitment for 10 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday? And we actually staged the leagues there. They understood the scoring. They were able to do it themselves. And that gave impetus to the first uh, Papa tournament. You know, it, it could never get the type of traction that it deserved. And, you know, Steve poured his heart and soul into it, as did I. And uh, the Las Vegas event when we were outside of New York really didn't pan out the way that we wanted it to. And, uh, you know, it kind of went dormant for a while until, uh, you know, Kevin Martin started Kinberg. And then Kinberg uh, suddenly became uh, Papa. When uh, Steve said, here, I'm not doing anything with it anymore. What, World, world Pinball Player Rankings? And the Whopper Points, as people affectionately now call it, so that you're competing in tournaments to gain Whopper Points so that you can, you know, raise your yourself on the uh, on the chart of best players in the world. It's kind of like the NASCAR uh, ratings or the golf ratings and, and so on. And the plan now is that uh, we're not only endorsing various events, uh, we're providing assistance, hands-on or otherwise, because there is an area of expertise that you know, not only Joshua has, but uh, most definitely Steve and myself do. 
All right, Roger. We're, we're coming up on two hours. I, oh. I think we better let you go. Okay. Um, I really, really appreciate the time you spent with us. Um, it really, uh, I, I mean, it, you had some great stories. Um, I mean, all of it was really, really, really good. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Well, thanks, and I actually just saw the picture of Steve and myself, so maybe there's a good ending with the two of us smiling. <laughs> okay, well, again, this is Ro- we're speaking with Roger Sharp, um, who worked got all the way from game plan uh, to Williams to licensing to, God, everything, to Papa. Man, you, you've pretty much done it all, you know, So and, and one of the best pinball players in the world, too. Well, at one time, yes. <laughs> now, nah. Well, now it's kind of like Arnold Palmer, Willie, or won't the, uh, do the uh, ceremonial tee-off for the Masters. Right. I kind of know my place in the world. Just All an right. old fart that still enjoys playing. All right. Well, thank you again, Roger. And you take well, care. Thank you, guys. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's all for tonight on TopCast.